But one of the more interesting comments that we read in this Gospel of John that we're studying together as a church is actually the very last comment in the book. Which means, if you're thinking about it, that John completes in its entirety his written account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then just before he lays his pen down, here's what he says. Last verse, and it's a verse that in many ways helps us to understand sort of the significance of all the other verses. He gets all the way to the end. He says this, John 21, verse 25. Let me read it to you. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. The idea being that John is saying, hey, listen, he did a lot of things that I did not write down in this gospel of mine. In fact, he tells us that there are so many of these other things that he didn't tell us about that were every one of them to be written. I suppose, he says, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that cool? Like, I love that. I just like, it makes me imagine what it must have been like to be around Jesus. But it tells you something. First of all, it tells you, hey, you know what? He didn't include everything. Got that message. But what it tells you also is that what he did include, he chose very, very carefully out of a huge corpus of material, which means that what he did include, he included for a reason. And he doesn't hide the reason from us either. He tells us what the reason is. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Let me read that to you as well. Now, Jesus, he writes, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Got it, John. But now notice what he says next. But these teachings, these stories, these events, these happenings, these things that I did write down and include in this book, he says, are written in this book. And here's why. So that you, my readers, may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in His name. What is He telling you? He's saying every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every phrase, every story, every event, every happening, everything that I did choose carefully out of this world full of books that I could have chosen from to include into my book, I've put into my book to call you to faith in this Jesus Christ who's being displayed in this book so that you may have life. So then the next question is, okay, but what kind of life? Well, the story that we're going to look at today, the carefully chosen story, the carefully written story, is going to tell us that the kind of life that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ is an eternally satisfying kind of life. He comes to us through this story and he says, look, here's the deal. Jesus Christ alone can satisfy you. That's it. He interrupts sort of the franticness of our lives in which we're running from thing to thing and person to person and thing to thing and person to person, somehow trying to find something that will satisfy the thirsting of our soul. And he's saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to work. Jesus alone satisfies. So we look at that story and pick it up this morning in John chapter 4, and we'll start it out in verse 4, where John writes this. He says, and he, meaning Jesus, who as we pick up the story this morning, is in the city of Jerusalem, which geographically speaking is in the southern part of the nation of Israel, but he wants to go to Galilee, which is in the north. And he says, he, Christ, who's in Jerusalem and who wants to go to Galilee, had, that's a very important word, to pass through Samaria. And I say that's important because I kind of want to say to him, no, actually he didn't. In fact, it would have been weird. Many scholars will tell you that the truth is that no good Jew really wanted to go through Samaria. 
And certainly no holy man like Jesus, you know, no rabbi, nobody who was really famous for being, you know, holy and, and a teacher of it. Just, they just wouldn't do that. Why would they not do that? Because Samaria was full of Samaritans. And Samaritans, well, at least from the perspective of the Jews, were filthy, detestable, unclean, pagan people. The Jews hated the Samaritans in the days of Christ. The Samaritans hated the Jews in the days of Christ. And it had gone on, guys, for century after century after century. 700 years before Jesus is even born. Now, just think about that. It's a long time. The Assyrian Empire, the arch enemies of Israel to the northeast at that time, swept down into this area called Samaria, and they took the northern kingdom of Israel, and they gathered up all of the nobility, if you will, and some of the other people as well, and they exiled them, they deported them, and took them back up into Assyria, and they left some Jews behind, and then they repopulated the area with non-Jews, and the Jews who were left behind in the northern kingdom began to intermarry with the non-Jews, and the Jews in the south in Judea were really not excited about that. They felt like, you know, hey, these people are abandoning our God. They're forsaking the covenant God of Israel by intermarrying with these people. And then they started coming up with their own theology. They rejected the whole of the Old Testament except for the first five books of Moses. And then they rejected the temple in Jerusalem as the place where the sacrifice for sins would be made. And they established their own temple, their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim, which you'll hear about in this story. And thus began a very, very long history of hatred, of racism, of prejudice, and even of acts of terror. You start to read some of the things that these people groups inflicted upon one another, and it's almost like reading out of the newspaper today. They literally terrorized one another. So what good Jew is going to want to go through there? Well, the answer in this case is Jesus. And then you say, well, why? Well, because he had to. But he didn't have to because it was the shortest distance between two points. He had to because he went there to meet a woman at a well. And I hope today, when you look at her, you see you. John says this. He says, and he had, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And then he starts giving us details. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Okay, well, that's interesting. Well, it's near something. Oh, well, what's it near? It's near the field that who? Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And not only that, but, uh-oh, here's his name again. Jacob's well was there. And so then what does Jesus do by Jacob's well? So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, he's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty, it's the Middle East, he's walked a long way was sitting beside the well. What is all this talk? I mean, what are all these details? Why did he mention Jacob's name twice and he'll mention him again in the story before we're done? What is he doing with all of that? Because we've been talking about the fact all year that it's not just stuff that's thrown in there. It's thrown in there for a reason. What is John calling us to do? He's calling us to think about Jacob and the story, I think in particular, of where and how Jacob meets his wife. He meets his wife, Rachel, where? At a... Well, and what do we know about Rachel? We know that she was beautiful and pure. And what do we know about Jacob? We know that he could only love someone who was beautiful and pure. Keep that in mind. Jesus, weary as he was from the journey was sitting beside Jacob's well. And so then if we're picking up on John's clues, we start to anticipate, hey, you know what? Because I know the story of Jacob, I know that a woman is going to come out. And, and, and she's going to meet with this true Jacob, if you will. 
And here's what she's going to look like. See, we're led to anticipate that she's going to show up and she's going to be beautiful and she's going to be pure. And guys, she is neither and in spades. And we know that because of the next little detail. John tells us that it was about the sixth hour when Jesus sat down by the well, sent his disciples off into town, which was like half a mile away to get some food, and patiently began to wait for the arrival of the one that he knew was coming. It was about the sixth hour. What's that? It's high noon. It's the hottest time of the day. And Jesus sends his disciples off and they start to make the half mile trek towards Sychar, probably thinking, oh, good grief, we've got to interact now with the Samaritans, you know. But they need to get some food. And as they're walking into the town, out comes a Samaritan woman. And she comes out all by herself, carrying an empty water jar. That is emblematic, though she does not realize this yet, of a thirst that is far more than just physical. And as the disciples pass her, they know all that they need to know to make a judgment about her. See, the reality is women in those days did not go to wells by themselves. And if you just think about it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, the wells in these areas, in this particular area of the world, it's an arid area. There's not a lot of water. And so these wells were gathering spots from people from all over the place. You know, you'd be traveling through. You're really, you're kind of going from well to well to well to well to well. It doesn't work good on MapQuest. But you need the water. So that's the way it goes. It's not an efficient route, but it keeps you alive. And so you never knew who you were going to meet at a well who might take you captive at a well, who might, you know, take you off and sell you as a slave from a well. There's danger at these wells, is my point, or at least there can be. So all the women would go out together, their safety in numbers, and they never went in the middle of the day. It's too doggone hot, take my word on that. Really hot. They went in the morning in the cool of the day. They went in the afternoon, late in the afternoon, in the cool of the day. And it was a big social occasion. All the ladies would gather together and they'd get their pots and they'd all go out. And it was laughter and it was joy and it was fun and it was talk and it was this and it was that. And this woman does not go with them. In fact, she goes out A, alone, B, in the middle of the day. Why? Because she is the antithesis of Rachel. She is not beautiful and she is not pure, at least morally. And she doesn't want to see the other women. She's heard enough of what they think of her. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside Jacob's well, and it was the sixth hour, really hot. And this woman of Samaria came to draw water, and then Jesus does something incredibly unusual in that day. He speaks to a woman, like he talks to her. Doesn't seem weird, does it? Very odd back then. You look into some of the rabbinical writings and you come to understand that it was seen, please don't be offended by this lady, this this was then, as beneath a man to speak to a woman in public even if he was married to her. Can you imagine that? She comes out, Jesus speaks to a woman in public and not just any woman but a Samaritan woman and not even just any Samaritan woman but a Samaritan woman who had been rejected as being unclean by the unclean Samaritans. And for good reason, at least, from their perspective. It was an earned reputation. And notice what he says to her. Jesus says to her in verse 7, Give me a drink, which, by the way, is not a suggestion. He doesn't say, Can I have a drink? I've noticed that about the Lord. He just 
says what he thinks we ought to do. But anyway, he says, give me a drink. And John says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So what does this mean? Well, it means that he's not only willing to talk to this woman, but he's willing to touch what she's touched. And you can be more intimate than that, really. He's willing to place his lips where she has placed her lips. I'd be asking things like, have you been sneezing much lately? You know, I mean, when was the last time you had a health checkup? I mean, you know, how's everybody in the household doing? Who last drank out of this thing? When was the last time this thing was washed? Tell me about the lip sore. Is it recurring or is this just a new thing? Not Christ, and here's why. Everything that Jesus Christ touches and everyone that Jesus Christ touches, he makes absolutely pure. I can't do that. No one else can do that. So Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. And she's so blown away like she completely ignores his request. It's like he didn't even say that. It's just the fact that he spoke is like just blows her mind. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman? And not just a woman, oh no, a woman of Samaria who I'm sure you've noticed, Jesus, came out in the middle of the day by herself and for good reason. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. And, and then what does Jesus do? Does he say, hey, lady, I don't know if you noticed, but I didn't, you know, offer a suggestion to you. I, I've been walking a long way here, hot, sweaty, middle of the day, Middle East, dying of thirst. Help me out. Stick with the topic. Give me a drink. He doesn't do that. Even though he is clearly thirsty. Even though he is the sinless son of God. Even though she is a Samaritan woman who's come out to this well bathed in guilt and sin and shame, for she has tried to satisfy her thirsty soul in all the wrong ways. He just kind of goes with it. Verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, well, then you would have asked him and he would have given you a completely different kind of water the kind of water you really need, the kind of water you're really looking for, but you don't even realize it yet. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water, which sounds amazing. Like you read that and you go, I know that's valuable. I don't know what it is, but it sounds great and I'm in, I think. And it does sound great, but what is it? What is he talking about? He's talking about the spirit of the living God whom God gives to live within us that calls us to repentance, that brings us to our knees, that brings us to this Jesus Christ who alone makes clean everything and everyone that He touches that we might be made clean and who fills our hearts with a fountain that satisfies in ways that nothing else can. Jesus answered her, He says, look, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, but she doesn't at least yet know who this is that's asking her for a drink and has no idea what he's talking about when he's talking about this living water because, I mean, you know, she's just standing next to a well, so she's thinking physically still. And so the woman said to him, sir, I, I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here, but you're talking about giving me some kind of a water. You don't even have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. If you go to the well today and you want to dip your bucket in the water... You better bring a rope at least 100 feet long. The well is deep. 
So where do you get that living water? Because if I know anything this woman's thinking, it doesn't come out of this well, and it doesn't come out of that town, and it doesn't come out of my life. And then she adds this. Here comes Jacob's name for a third time. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Because here's what Jacob did for us, Jesus. He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And I think that if I was Christ, I might respond by going, okay, well, I don't mean to be Captain Obvious or anything here, uh, but let's talk about this water that he gave you. Because it seems to me it only satisfies for a little while. And the very fact that you're standing here with your empty jar pretty much is indisputable evidence of that. And aside from that, I mean, if you want to talk about Jacob, well, then let's think about the greatness of his love. He can only love that which is beautiful and pure. Jesus is going to say to this woman in so many words, I, however, love you. And the love of Christ is so powerful that it transforms that which is ugly and impure into that which is beautiful and pure. It's amazing. But he doesn't say that. He again just kind of goes with the conversation. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this physical water, of this physical well, which is emblematic, by the way, of all the waters of this world, literal and metaphorical, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Why? Because just like our bodies get thirsty and then we slake our thirst and then they get thirsty and then we drink some water and then they get thirsty again and, and then we drink some water and we're like, oh, I don't think I can drink another drop, you know, and an hour later, there we are at the refrigerator. It's the same thing with our hearts. It's the same thing with our souls. And there's a sense in which we run frantically from well to 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 well, trying to draw water out of a well that these wells are just not equipped to give. That only comes from Christ. So we run to the well of marriage, and that's going to be the cure-all for us. you know. And we're trying to draw out of the well of our husband or our wife something they're not equipped to give. They're a great blessing, but they're not the Holy Spirit. They're not Jesus. And we try to draw out of the well of our career, you know, a water that it's just it, like it doesn't have. It may be a great blessing, but it's, it's not the Lord. And so we run from relationship to relationship and experience to experience and travel to travel and job to job and career to career and even city to city. I've got friends who go, man, I just know that if I move out of this town and I go to this other town and I can start over, life is going to be great. Hey, you know what? It may be better. Maybe there's some logic. But are you trying to pull out of the well of that town something that isn't there? Something that only Christ can give. I don't know if you're familiar with Ravi Zacharias. He says a lot of brilliant things. One of the things that he said that struck me is he said, the loneliest moment in life is when you finally achieve that which you thought would be the ultimate for you. And you discover that it isn't. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. For the water that I will give him will become where? In him. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I kind of like her response. I mean, she's still not getting it, but she's all in on whatever it is at this point. 
and yet still for the wrong reasons. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water, here's why, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come out to this well again in the heat of the day all by myself as a result of the life that I've built or torn down to draw water. So she's still not getting it, and Jesus just cuts right to the chase. And by cuts, I almost mean that literally because the statement that he makes is cutting. It's like surgery. It hurts, but it's necessary. Jesus said to her, verse 16, tell you what, why don't you go call your husband and come back? Go get him and come back. I'll wait. Now that's a sore subject. He puts his finger on a place of pain for her. And I don't know what the tone of her voice was when she said this, but I, I just I like it feel like it was humble. Because <laughs> Jesus commends her in a second. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, okay, that's right. You're right in saying, I have no husband. Now let me give you the rest of the story. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. And let's be honest, you and me, that's why your reputation is what it is in this town. That's why all the women are afraid you're going to steal their man. That's why everybody gossips about you all of the time. That's why you come out to this well all by yourself in the heat of the day, orchestrating your entire life to avoid these people, trying to satisfy a thirsty soul by dipping your bucket, if you will, in wells that don't produce the right kind of water. And it's painful. What you have said, Jesus says, is true. Now, is that insensitive? I think it's necessary. What is Jesus trying to do? He's coming to her and he's trying to help her to understand what her real thirst is. And he's illustrating from her own life how she has wrongfully tried to satisfy it and the effects of that. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, he could do that for all of us, really. Couldn't he? I mean, he could come to us and go, hey, um, so how's marriage doing for you? Because you're trying to satisfy your soul with that. And your bucket's coming up empty. How is success, however you've defined it? You know, the nadir, the whatever. Because you're trying to satisfy your soul with that. And there's no water like that in that well. How is status? How is reputation? How is, you know, I mean, whatever it may be for you or for me. Jesus said to this woman, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Yeah, but that's not quite nearly enough. And so then she asks him a theological question. You're a theological guy. Let me ask you a theological question. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, meaning this Mount Gerizim, that's in plain view of where they're standing. But you, meaning you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's the place where people ought to come to sacrifice innocent lambs to cover over the guilt that they've incurred in their life before the Lord. And it kind of sounds like she's trying to change the topic, you know, but as I thought about it, I'm not really sure. Now, I think that's pretty common, and I think that we do it all the time. 
You know, God comes and he wants to talk to us about something and we say, oh, you know what, Lord, why don't we talk about this over here instead? We raise all these straw men insincerely. Oh, I just can't believe in a God like that because of blah, blah, blah. And the blah, blah, blah may be sincere, but usually it's not. It's, it's what it really is, is I don't want to deal with the fact that I've really blown it in life and have to just psychologically endure the trauma of humbling myself before the Lord and saying, okay, yeah. Or there's something in my life that is an idol for me that I, it's much more dear to me than Jesus. And so then, you know, I'd rather talk about, you know, whatever, the dinosaurs or something, because what I'm hoping to be able to do is avoid having to turn this over, this sin, this stuff, this, this happens and that's common, but I don't think that's where she's going. I think what's happening here is that she's saying to Jesus, look, I have a thirsty soul and I've tried to satisfy the thirst of my soul from all the wrong wells. And you've rightly identified that guilty. But here's my problem. Where do I take my guilt? Where do I take my sin? Where do I take my shame? Because you Jews tell me that I have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. That's the place where the innocent lamb of God is slain, if you will. And that blood can cover over my sin. Well, guess what? I'm a Samaritan. They don't let me anywhere near there. And, you know, we Samaritans have always believed that, well, this mountain right here, that's the place to do it. But I've tried that already. You're telling me I'm still guilty. My own heart is agreeing with you. So now what? What do I do? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, so then tell me. Our fathers worshipped on, on this mountain here, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So where do I go then? And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You meaning you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're wrong on the whole Mount Gerizim thing. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it's more than just coming, and it is now here. When the true worshipers, whose sins have been washed away by the innocent blood of the true Lamb of God, who is also, parenthetically, the true temple of God, and the true tabernacle, who doesn't reject the foreigner, who doesn't reject the Samaritan woman, who doesn't reject the ugly and the impure, for which we ought all to be very thankful, but who takes all comers, and who is himself the true Jacob, whose love is so great that he can love a woman like that, a guy like me, a person like you, and not just love us, but transform us to make us something we aren't, by nature. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And then it's like she almost throws her hands up in the air, you know. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, well, then He'll tell us all things. He's going to clear all this up for us when He gets here. And notice what Jesus does next. He reveals himself to this woman. To this woman. To a woman, not just any woman. A Samaritan woman, not just any Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman who's unclean even amongst the unclean Samaritans. He has not revealed himself this clearly thus far in this gospel 
to anyone. It's stunning. It's amazing, really. Jesus said to her, and he didn't speak in parables, directly. He says, I who speak to you am he. Wow. And what's the result? Well, verse 28, John says, so the woman left her water jar, left it where? With Christ. The jar that's emblematic of more than her physical thirst, it's, it's the thirsting of her soul. She left that with the one in whom she has been satisfied. And she went away into this town of Sychar <laughs> to the very people that she had again organized her whole life around avoiding, which is stunning. And she said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, from their perspective, what's the problem with that? Everyone in town knew all that she had ever done. So then what's remarkable about this? Nothing. What's remarkable is her. What's remarkable is that this woman who came out to this well so paralyzed by sin and guilt and shame and so forth that she was organizing her life around avoiding these people at all costs and even at great risk, is now joyfully, shamelessly, guiltlessly, boldly coming to them. And not as one who resents or hates them, but as one who comes pleading for their souls, who recognizes that they're in as great as peril as she just was. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ, she says? That's rhetorical. And you know what they did? They listened. And they went out and they met this same Jesus. And they drank from the living water of the well who is Christ and were satisfied. So... John didn't tell us all the stories of Jesus. Kind of a bummer. Like, I wish there was some book that just, and here's the rest of the story, you know? Kind of the Paul Harvey edition. Just because I'm curious. I mean, I'd really like to know. I, I just think that'll be neat. So that'll make for a cool video in heaven, I guess. But, but he very carefully chose. Very carefully. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a very tiny percentage, apparently, of all of it made the grade. And then he constructed it, and he added it, and he put it in here in such a way as to do what? Well, I'll read it to you again. He included all of these stories, but this one in particular today, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may stop running from well to well to well to well to well to well to well in this world looking for something that these wells can't provide. And you can instead come to the well who is Jesus and find eternally satisfying life. Not a bad story. Amen.